AI has been a massive disruptive force over the past year. That's why we're excited to announce our brand new show, Introducing AI Explored. It's a weekly show hosted by me, Michael Stelzner. If you want to understand how to put AI to work, this is the show for you. Each week, we'll dive deep into using AI to your advantage. We're talking the practical, tactical stuff that I know you're probably craving. Search for AI Explored on your favorite podcast app, and happy listening. Welcome to the Marketing Agency Show, where we explore solutions to the biggest challenges faced by agencies. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me for the Marketing Agency Show, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Brooke Sellis, and this is the show for agency owners and agency marketers. We explore the topics that no one else is talking about. So pull up a seat to the table and let's have a great conversation. Today, I'll be joined by Jonathan Jacobs, and we'll be discussing his secrets for hiring and retaining top marketing talent. Also, if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow the show so you don't miss any of our future content. Let's transition over to this week's guest, Jonathan. To help explore the frontier of working at and growing agencies, here is this week's expert guide. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to be joined by one of my best marketing friends, Jonathan Jacobs. Jonathan was the co-founder and a former executive partner for Digital Natives Group. For a decade, Jonathan and his team brought their marketing expertise to projects working with giant brands such as Fortune 500 brands, global sports leagues, and Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize winning authors. In 2021, his agency, Digital Natives Group, was successfully acquired in a dual acquisition. Today, Jonathan acts as a fractional CMO and advisor to numerous startups and thought leaders. Woo, I almost barely made it through that one. Jonathan, welcome to the show. I think you did a great job. It's great to see you, Brooke. Hi, it's so good to see you. And I'm so excited to talk to you today about teams. Teamwork makes the dream work, as they say, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I know that you put such a value and emphasis on your team and even now have such a great relationship with the team who you worked with previously. So we'll get into all of that. But first things first, always the first question, what made you take the jump and even get involved in starting an agency? I wanted to wear shorts to work. (laughs) Best answer. That's the, the easy answer to that question. Listen, I, I'm I'm very privileged, and when I graduated university, was in a position where I could take a risk and know that if I did, I had the rest of my life to to make up for any failure or ill effects that came of that. And I had some friends from growing up who we had worked on a lot of projects together that we felt like were the good seeds for starting a business before in the past. And we said, why don't we just take the leap together and and give something a shot and do it now? And at that point in time, that was 2011. It was early in the growth of digital as a service offering from agencies. So we said, instead of backing into it, which is what a lot of agencies were doing at that point in time, why don't we try to create this group that can emerge organically from digital and try to create a service offering from that? And I would say for two years, we had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) And as some of your listeners probably know, you know, most folks who will go out and start an agency come with one of two things. They either come with a book of business that they can rely on as a portfolio, or they come with a set of relationships that help them acquire those first few projects. And we had neither. So, you know, we spent 
two years spinning our wheels, pounding the pavement, doing projects from the pizza shop on the corner to the stay-at-home mom who ran a cookie business out of her garage. And then eventually, you know, through a series of very fortunate events, we're able to build a successful business out of that and scaling up, as you, you know, mentioned before, being able to work with Fortune 500 companies, CEOs, Pulitzer Prize winners. We were really, really fortunate what we were able to do. Wow, that's such a journey. And I think it's important to note for those of you listening who maybe don't have a book of business or don't have the relationships to get you to that book of business, you can still make it happen. So next question that's kind of kind of lead us into our our team talk and talent talk for today. You know, was there anything in your career path or at school or any sort of personal experience that led you to really kind of understanding that team comes first? Because it sounds like you were fresh and new and starting your agency, but I know you put a big emphasis on team. So did that come from something or how did that happen? That's a really good question. And, and quite frankly, I don't know if I've ever thought about that before because that mixes two things, one of which is a, is a personal values component, which is you know what has made you value people so much as a piece of this. And it's hard to point to a formative experience there. But what I do think about, what comes to mind for me when you ask that question is I had a founding team of four. There was myself and three other guys, men, who started this business together. And as we were growing the team, as we went through those first few hires, a couple of things happened. One is you start to realize that, okay, when we're four people, we each contribute 25% to the culture of this organization. As we bring in the fifth person, we all contribute 20%. And then as we bring in a few more people, it's, it's 17%, it's 15%, 10%. So that's actually a very significant impact that a single person can have on the culture of an organization. So that was happening in one part of my brain. And then another part was my partners and I having the realization that especially as a leadership team, what we model as being acceptable behavior is what everybody else in the organization is going to think is okay, whether or not it should be okay, because that's the tone that we're setting. So then we started to go through a lot of that process of saying, well, we need to be intentional with culture. Culture does not emerge organically from an organization. You decide what an organization's culture is through your leadership. There are no islands here. It's not these two people behave a certain way. Therefore, this is the safe zone. No, it's all of these micro interactions and macro across an organization create what that culture is. And I think when those couple realizations were happening, that just led me to be so much more concerned with what the employee experience was. And then we started to have a talking point. And I, quite frankly, I cannot remember if it was one of my partners or myself who came up with this. But for the sake of today's interview, because it's just me, I'll take credit. We had started to say, you know, my goal is always to have created an organization that when somebody leaves, because people are always going to leave, it is a falsehood to pretend that they're not. And you do them a disservice when you don't accurately talk about that experience for them because you're not serving them. We want somebody who leaves us, who then lectures at university, mentors somebody else, whatever that is, we want them to be able to say, I am so glad I started my career at Digital Nays Group, or I'm so glad I spent time there because it prepared me for what came next. And I think that's how I tried to operate as much as I could in my employee experience was making sure that people look back on this time, or at least their experience working with me and the team that they worked with fondly, and is a place that they would feel comfortable referring people to work, even when they're no longer a part of this organization. Wow, I think that's so powerful, right? Especially in today's times and workplaces. So kind of leaning off of that culture that you just shared with us that you were able to create, you know, you were able to attract top talent, but how did you retain some of the talent? Because I know some of your team members were with you 
for years and years and years, which is really almost unheard of in the digital space. So can you clue us in? I mean, to put some numbers behind that for people, I believe we had employees for about seven or eight years in total. And at the time of sale, our average retention was four and a half years. We had people who were with us for seven or eight years. We had people who left and came back. And when we went through our acquisition, we maintained 100% retention. Nobody, you know, while people may have left because they did not enjoy what the acquisition business looked like relative to what we were before, everybody was comfortable enough with our leadership that they were willing to take the risk and jump with us to experience that new entity. And so to your question, you know, about retention here, as I would say, we struggled a lot with hiring, creating that pipeline when you are not a big organization that has name recognition is really hard, as I'm sure many people so hard. <laughs> can relate to. And I know you can as well. Yeah. But from a retention piece, you know, there's that what I like to think about with retention is what I call the retention triangle. You know, in our business, one of my partners introduced this concept that I'm pretty sure he cribbed from somewhere else. And I, I cannot remember who we, we have to give credit to for that. But he said, you know, when you're working on a project for someone, there's three things that you can do. You can do great work. You can deliver it on time and you can be a pleasure to work with. You can do two of those three things, but you cannot succeed at all three because if you try to do them all, it's going to become impossible. So as an organization, what did we do well? We did great work. And we were a pleasure to work with, but deadlines did not exist in our universe. Um, <laughs> and because of those other two things, we were able to get away with that nine times out of 10. Wait, say it one more time. Cause I, I know people listening are going to be like, wait, what did he say? So just say one more time what the three things are. Yeah. You can be a pleasure to work with. You can deliver your work on time or you can do great work. Right. So for us, it was uh, being a pleasure to work with and, and doing great work. But if we tried to do it on time, we would either be under so much stress we wouldn't get it done or the quality of the work would be compromised. And again, if somebody listening to this can, can make a comment somewhere or DM me and remind me who to give credit to for this properly in the future, I would appreciate it. But all that to say, I take that same framework. And to me, I bring that to how we look at employee retention. And I you know, create kind of a similar triangle there, which is to say, I think as an employer, there's three elements of the employee experience that we really would could seek to maximize. And the first is we can give people salary and benefits such that it enables them to live the life they want to live outside of work. We can give people work that challenges them, or we can give people a wonderful group of people to do their work with, right? So it's kind of that like compensation component, it is the challenges component, and it's the community component. And I think those are the three options that we can try to maximize as an employer. And again, it's that same idea where you got to pick two of them and try to focus in really hard on what those are to create an environment that will allow somebody to want to stay for a really long time because they feel like their soul and their bank account is being filled by the work that they're doing for you. So I think for us, you know, the question then is, well, what did we, we choose to maximize here? I would say it's probably community and challenges, as a lot of us can relate to. Compensation is a tough component piece in the marketing industry. We historically have done a very bad job as an industry at compensating well. And that's, you know, we could do a whole other podcast episode on that. <laughs> and while I do think the culture we created allowed people to live the life they wanted to, I don't think compensation was the reason for that. But I do think we gave people a lot of autonomy. We gave people a lot of freedom to take Take risks. So when we they were confronted with a marketing problem, a client challenge, we let them figure out how they wanted to solve it. We obviously gave them the support and guidance they need, but having that chance to learn on their own is not something they would have gotten from another organization. And I think we gave people an environment that they felt supported, that they felt comfortable within. They felt like they could bring their whole selves to work if they so choose to. And that is what really encouraged people to stay for a long time. I love that. 
the triangle of retention and the three C's. Okay, I'm, I'm taking mental notes here. Oh my, because someone will ask me tomorrow. <laughs> someone will, and you're going to be like, ooh, what was it? So can you share with us a strategy or a principle or an example, a story of doing the three C's or two of the three and then the triangle retention triangle triangle of retention anyhow can you give us like a story or an example of how those played out in a successful way for you yeah so i'll give you kind of like almost like maybe a way to activate on some of these or, or, or examples so i think the first one that i'll give you is within the realm of kind of the community piece here i think a big thing there is respecting boundaries and the way that boundaries have shifted because of the way we talk about you know, mental health and therapy speak in culture today because of the work from home component is really, really different. But what I think we need to be reminded of as employers quite a bit is some people, whether they acknowledge it or whether it's this assumption that lives in their subconscious brain somewhere, there is sometimes the behavior where we act as if we have this this demand that we can place on people's time 24-7. That is not to say we're sitting on the other end here expecting that if I call you at 2 a.m. you're going to answer it, but is this idea that our requests and our things that we need have priority over something else in their lives. And the reality is, no, we do not buy access to someone's life. We buy access to their professional hours, their professional output between the hours of you know nine to five or whatever the boundaries on that are. And then outside of that, they get to choose how this fits into the priority of other things. And a specific thing within boundaries that I'll give you is, you know, you know me, I'm very active on social media and some of my best talent came to me through, through Twitter and through LinkedIn. And in our first kind of onboarding conversations, I, I said to a few of the folks who work for me, I said, listen, I, I'm going to follow you on social media. I'm going to you know, follow you. I'm not seeking you out, but I, I know you're there. We've interacted before. I already follow you. But you also have a life outside of work and you shouldn't have to sit there thinking, what will Jonathan say about this? What will supervisor ABC say about this? You're allowed to do things I disagree with and don't like, and that should not jeopardize your employment because that's how you choose to live your life outside of here. So if you don't want me to follow you, tell me. And that's not a problem. I will remove myself from that. I'm not expecting you to follow me. You have a life. You are allowed to have that. And just because I'm your boss and it's happening in public doesn't mean I need to sit there watching it all the time. And you need to be thinking about the fact that I'm watching it. I want to stop here for just a second because you said something that's so interesting about respecting boundaries and time. Alex and I were having this discussion. It wasn't an argument. It was just a discussion the other day. One of our team members was on vacation. And something came up with a client while this person was out. And Alex was going to just kind of ping them inside of the project management system that we use. And I was like, but he's on vacation. Like, wait till he comes back. And he's like, well, I don't expect him to check this during working hours. He's on vacation. He'll see it when he comes back. Right. And I was like, no, we should probably just wait until he's back. And he was like, well, he's not. He shouldn't be checking work. He, he'll see it when he gets back. So like. I just, I'm curious, like, what would your positioning be in that discussion? <laughs> well, I think there's a couple factors there. One is that's why there's the wonderful benefit of like scheduling messages to go at a later time. I think that's such a key feature, right? Just because I'm checking email at 10 p.m. doesn't mean you need to be checking email at 10 p.m. And I think the other component there is we have to take in a dose of reality, which is to say, yes, we're telling someone don't check email, don't check Slack, don't check Teams, whatever it is. But the hard wiring is, let me just check. Let me pitch in. Let me take a look. Let me see if there's anything. And if that ping is there, even if, okay, I've told you, don't worry about it until you get back, you, you can't forget it. You can't put that out of your head. Like we don't have that men in black little silver thing that's going to do a splash of light and you're going to forget about it. So now I've just planted that seed that they're going to be thinking about until the moment they come back. So 
you know, as much as you can, I would say, isolate and take it out. And if it's something that you can resolve, so it doesn't have to wait for them to come back, okay, then maybe it's an okay situation. But I would only handle it directly if you're like, hey, it's a quick phone call. Where is this file located kind of a thing where they can answer that. Therefore, I can resolve that and they can come back to a clean slate. And I would say that was pretty much kind of the relationship we tried to implement to the best of our ability. Okay, I I really love that because, you know, we had a team member at one time who on her own accord would come in and check things while she was on vacation. And then after she left, we got kind of some feedback that she had to work on her time off. And I, I'm like now more appreciating what you're saying even more because, you know, she might have had something tasked or whatever. And she decided to check it on her own accord. But like you're saying, we're hardwired to do that. Agreed. Like I, I really have to try hard not to check email after a certain amount of time because I can't sit on it. I can't. So I really appreciate that tip and that, that boundary setting that you're providing to everybody who's watching or listening. All right. Well, so on that note, because we're talking about the difficult things, what do you think has been the biggest challenge for you when it comes to retaining top talent? There's a couple things there that I want to talk about. I would say first and foremost, and boundaries is a huge part of this conversation is, listen, I don't think our industry as a whole is built to be respectful of people's boundaries. And I think the way client relationships are structured is that people will continue to find the least common denominator, meaning who can I put them as a a client side, who can I put the most demands on to get the most out of a scope of work possible? And if you, you, Jonathan, are telling me that you can't solve this thing at eight o'clock on a Friday that I think is important and you're willing to jeopardize the relationship, I'm gonna jump over to B2 and start working with Brooke because Brooke has told me I will service your needs at any hour of the day. And what that creates is like this expectation on the client side that just because there's one party out there that's willing to do it, that therefore needs to become the norm. And the reality is, Again, as we all know, we are not neurosurgeons. We are not NASA engineers. The vast majority of things are truly not mission critical. And I have heard the stories a hundred times. It's the somebody asking at 9 p.m. on a Friday, hey, why is that Facebook ad not up and running yet? Well, it's not up and running yet because it doesn't happen as much now. It used to happen quite a bit more, but the Facebook review process is- Yes, oh my gosh, yes. There's nothing you can do to accelerate that. And then what can you get on the phone and ask somebody- it doesn't matter. This is not a time-sensitive sale. Facebook doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other podcast series that we could talk about Facebook support and the, and the inquiry questions we get. The non-existent support, yeah. So I think that's a huge reality is that I think this this industry, isn't. I don't think it's ever going to get that wake-up call because I think there's too many people within it. But I do think I wish I wish we could all take a cold, hard look at the mirror and say, what am I asking of my vendors and what am I asking of my people because of that? And, you know, my... I had a huge tiff once with somebody I worked with because the client had placed a demand, which is, I don't want to see that person's work on a project. And I said, you know, internally, well, we don't have anyone else. This is the most, and not only that, this is the most competent person to work on this project, given what the client vertical is. And so we all agreed on that. And that person went and developed the digital marketing strategy. And then her name was taken off the final presentation. So I spoke up and I to the rest of the executive team. And I was like, we can't do this. This is going to destroy morale. This is also a group of executive leadership of men who's taking a woman's name off of her work. Like nothing about this yeah. is appropriate. If we didn't want this affiliated, we had a chance to change the strategist out at that point in time. And we all agreed that was not the right way to go. And the basic conclusion was, well, 
profits. Like we need to retain clients and make money. And I will always sit on the side of people over profits because maybe one month more will operate in the red, but having, I'd rather have 25% bandwidth. We can do something creative with and keep my people around than run it a hundred percent and destroy company morale because that, that will burn us into the ground faster than anything else. So, so that problem number one with retention, I, again, is I think the way the industry is structured, I would say on my side of things, I really struggled a lot with compensation. We just, that, that was a forever problem of being able to compensate people enough the right way. And I think for independent agencies, it only gets harder because we now have more bigger traditional firms that are coming to the table to compete. You know, we see the marketing arms that the Deloitte's of the world are building, which are great wonderful organizations with incredibly competent people doing amazing work, but these orgs will always able to be able to bring more resources to the table than you or I can as an SMB who's doing also incredible work, but our business is much more unpredictable and we don't have other industries. So we don't have other verticals supporting us that could make this a short-term loss leader to attract talent and clients to work with. So I think for me, that's always been the hardest part because I can push and I can push and I can push, but at a certain point, I can't break a certain pay ceiling. And we try to get around it other ways. And, you know, part of what I talk about with compensation a lot is if you want people to act like an owner, make them an owner, get, give them equity, give them uh, profit sharing. That's the only way to make that possible. But there's only so many tricks you can do when at the end of the day, if they their base compensation somewhere else can be 50% more than what you can offer, it's in their best interest to go do it. Yeah, we we lost a team member on, on that same scenario she was actually looking to have a baby. And, you know, that's a big deal. Insurance is a big deal. And all, all of our, you know, team is 1099s. And she got an offer from an amazing offer from an amazing company with, you know, a, a nice big salary and all kinds of benefits and maternity leave. And we just couldn't compete. And at the end of the day, I was like, look, you've got to take that. I, I, I would love to try to argue this or keep you. You're amazing. But at the end of the day, this is about you and your life and what's going to work for you. And you need to take that job, you know? So, I mean, that's such a true pain point, I think, for smaller agencies like ours, compensation and then keeping the talent. AI has been a massive disruptive force over the past year. That's why we're excited to announce our brand new show, Introducing AI Explored. It's a weekly show hosted by me, Michael Stelzner. If you want to understand how to put AI to work, this is the show for you. Each week, we'll dive deep into using AI to your advantage. We're talking the practical, tactical stuff that I know you're probably craving. Search for AI Explored on your favorite podcast app and happy listening. So, you know, kind of along that same line, have you ever had a situation where maybe one of your team members was considering leaving? And they were frank enough with you to let you know. And were you able to turn it around or, you know, share some behind the curtains? I mean, some of my longest tenured people would come up to me. I got another offer somewhere else, X, Y, Z amount of dollars. And it was all right. We got to match it. We got to bring other incentives to the table for them. And I would say we helped. We staved off two exits for that reason before. One of those individuals did eventually end up leaving, then came back, then left again. But we knew that was short that was that was going to be a short-term stay that was all agreed from the outset um, another one the one who came back the second one stayed until we sold and then through the sale anybody else who left us they otherwise 
pretty much left for a job in a different industry. It wasn't so much that they left to stay within marketing because they got a better offer somewhere else. But I would say what you are reminding me of that I'm the most proud of is that we had someone who grew with us from the role of basically like office manager to digital strategist and took a lot of pops along the way. But as we all know, that's not the way to grow your salary base. The way you grow your salary base is you flip between positions. And, you know, am I proud of it? No, I'm not sitting here saying that this is the way it should be done, but it means we underpaid for what she was giving us and relative to the external hires we made doing that role. And when she found out, she came to me and was like, listen, I want to stay here, but I need to be paid, you know, the, the, the compensation for what my role is. I'm being very underpaid relative to other people. And so, you know, talking out of both sides of my mouth, I was like, I'm very proud of you. You're doing the right thing. I'm, this is so great. We'll make sure that this gets done. And then the other side is like, okay, we'll talk soon. I have to like run this up the flagpole. We'll see what we can do. And we were, you know, we did appropriately compensate her once that was kind of raised because she was absolutely right. She did deserve that. But again, that's more of the nature of knowing how to move about through your career mixed with a little bit of that kind of compensation relative to the industry. Yeah. Okay. So going back to paychecks for a second, because this is, this is a big pain point, obviously, right? Like paying people what they deserve to be paid or what they want to be paid is very different from paying people what you can afford, <laughs> how you can afford to pay them, right? So, you know, kind of going in that, in that direction with the conversation and, and knowing that we can't, you and I talking for ourselves, speaking for ourselves, can't offer people exactly what they might get somewhere else, even at a medium-sized agency. You know, I'm sure it leans into some of the things you talked about earlier, but how did you provide intangible benefits that helped people want to stay, even if the compensation wasn't quite where they wanted it to be? I would say, A, number one, we had an incredibly flexible, in my opinion, well, you can do a follow-up interview with people who work for you. Uh, I think we had an incredibly flexible work culture. You know, even before, we, I would not say we were a remote first organization, but even before, you know, 2020 and the pandemic, the majority of people worked from home multiple days a week. I would say our leadership team was frequently in office, but that's because most of us lived in the same neighborhood where we had an office. But we had, you know, we were in Long Island City, which is the westernmost part of Queens for most folks who don't know New York. But we had somebody on Long Island and he only came into the, you know, that was when we couldn't meet his compensation, we'd be like, all right, well, you can work from home one more day a week and you can work from home one more day. So he was only coming in one day a week. Somebody else that was in Queens was only coming in maybe three days a week. So there were other ways we could provide those intangibles that that made it worth it because we're giving them back their time. And so that was you know a huge component of it. I think another one is that we weren't the best at this all the time, but we did our best to make sure that our perks and benefits were aligning with what people actually wanted versus what we could choose to provide because it was something that we thought sounded interesting to us. So, you know, we were never that org that was just like, we're going to do a lunch and learn because you know what? People don't want to do that. They want to yeah. have their lunch. They want to sit. They want to watch their TV show. They want to read their book. They want to go for their walk. And you know what? That lunch and learn is not making them a better employee. What they are mm. passionate about independently pursuing and learning is making them a better employee. Like there's nothing I'm going to sit there and force them to learn that's going to change their life. You know, if we did a lunch and learn, it was you let somebody on the team teach you something. Let somebody else be the superhero for a day. So that would kind of make them feel empowered. And we certainly had our false starts of trying things that we thought sounded interesting. You know, we did a book club for a little while, but that eventually lost steam. But I, I think we did our best to make sure that our perks were being driven by what did people want versus what do we want to give them? Because again, then it's not really a perk. It's not really a benefit if it's just, well, 
I, I'm offering this so I can check a box and say it's here, but are people actually deriving value from it? You know, we offered like city bike memberships for a while, which is the bike share in New York City. I think we, we offered New York Times memberships for people, but we saw that the, the consumption was not there. So it was like, all right, we're saying we offer these things, but nobody's really benefiting from them or using them. So at the end of the day, you have two options. I can provide a benefit that they'll actually align with, or let's just cut the program. And even if it means $10 more a month, that's more money in somebody's pocket that they can now recognize. Yeah, that's really, really good advice because I think we all do that, right? Like, here's what we can do. So let's do this instead of saying like, hey, everybody, what could we do in the realm of these things that would most benefit you or that you would most want to do? So talking a little bit about career development, you know, how do you or how did you, and again, I, I've seen you do things on social. So as an, as an aside, even when Jonathan and his group sold their agency, he was on every social channel, like hustling to get jobs for some of the team members who didn't stay with well, the we acquisition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that was so amazing. And I feel like that's part of, you know, personal growth and development of the team. But when you were all together before that happened, can you share any specific initiatives or programs or things that worked well to kind of help your team members grow into their role or maybe grow into a different role like you were talking about earlier from office manager to digital strategist? I think a huge part of that was just the nature of being a small team. Like we, people have to wear multiple hats within, you know, a small team organization. So that, that's just the nature of the beast. I think we also just gave people a lot of autonomy and allowing them to develop, to pursue the challenges that are interesting to them. Again, that's what makes people want to stay around versus going to a job where we're going to move the same widgets every single day. No, Day one, you're working on problems A, B, and F. On day two, you're working on X, Y, and three. On day three, you're you're having a you know personal practice day where you're re reviewing some new skills or whatever. So I think that ability to consistently be changing tracks is really useful because it lets people figure out, well, what am I really interested in? Like what element of this is really fascinating to me? So I think that growth provided a lot of opportunity. Was I the best mentor or coach? I don't know. You know, I, I put something on LinkedIn the other day. I was like, no one can ever know if they're a good manager. There is no way that I could look in the mirror and tell you, I have done a great job. I am an amazing manager. The only people that can answer that question are the people who worked for you. And they're never going to tell you the right answer. Like I have a great relationship with the people who used to work for me, but I am sure if they ever got together over a coffee or a beer, they'd be like, yeah, John's great. But, you know, A, B and C, he's really got to work on those things. But again, I think giving people that autonomy to pursue challenges was, was huge at, at allowing for that career development and growth. I also think because we were a small org, but working with very big global brands, that gave people a lot of exposure that they wouldn't have otherwise had to senior leaders, seasoned you know, marketers and executives. So getting that firsthand experience was really you know, useful and meaningful. And I also think just my own, what I will toot my own horn about my own vulnerability about going through the process and being like, I don't know the right answer. I don't know how we're going to get here. I have no idea what to do. Being vulnerable about my, my own imposter syndrome about it all. I think that just creates a stronger connection that allows you to solve problems together and puts you on equal footing that made for much better solutions development because we had created a place that was that offered psychological safety. Mm, psychological safety. That's such a great keyword. What about events? 
Did you, you know, send your team to any of these wonderful marketing events that we we get to go to? But what about the team? How does that work? Yeah, we did. We went to like a few digital summits time and again, but we, we ended up people just were not really interested in them. So, you know, if someone brought something to the table and they wanted to go, sure. You know, as long as it wasn't a $5,000 ticket, we were down to, to send people the thing. You know, I, I came to your B2 conference with one of my employees one year. Another one and I, we went to Phoenix for a digital summit there. I'm sure, we, you know, I don't think anybody, we may have gone to like social media week one year, but nobody was like, oh, I want to go to Cannes. I want to go to, to Adweek's thing. I want to go to this, I want to go to that. It was not really of interest to them. And again, if someone came to and brought it, we certainly do it. But people, they would bring to the table, oh, I want to take this online email marketing course. I want to take this webinar and, you know, that was like, yeah, of course, $350, $100, whatever it was, we'll go do it. You know, we gave people, I think one thing, one benefit people loved was we gave them Skillshare membership so they could take all these courses on their own yes. time if they wanted to. great and then it's, Yeah, and it's also not only marketing courses, but they can learn, you know, how to how to knit, you know, whatever it is that they're they're interested by. So, so we didn't really do too much of that. From our own team building side of things, you know, I, I did an annual retreat for the social team, which was basically me and everybody who reported to me. We only did that in person, I think twice. And then all the other times it was virtual because I only, we only had enough people to really make it useful beginning in like 17 or 18. And then beginning in 20, we did it all online. Right. And those were usually pretty good. I think people really enjoyed hanging out, certainly a little bit lethargic at time, just because you're spending so much time in a meeting and spending so much time at a computer during COVID but it was useful to get that time together. But no, from external events and stuff, people, there, there didn't tend to be an interest. And again, I think that's part of that whole like work-life balance. Like I don't need to go to this event where I'm going to listen to people give the same speech 10 different ways. Interesting. That's so interesting. It, you know, I guess, and that goes back to your point, like listen to what your team wants, because a lot of times that's what our team comes up with. Like we want to do this training or I love the idea of the Skillshare thing. I have to just point that out because that is such a great idea. Like, yeah, if somebody on our team came to us and said, hey, I want to take this certificate course that's, you know, X amount of dollars, that would certainly be something that we would consider because it's it's not a major cost, right? There's no travel or anything like that involved accommodations. And, you know, there's a ton of courses these days that are, some of them are free and some of them are just really nicely priced. So I think the whole Skillshare membership is a fantastic idea. Yeah, we did that. I think Masterclass might have something similar, or at least we looked into that at one point. And it's great because A, it's it's certainly the pursuit of industry relevant knowledge, but it's the pursuit of knowledge generally that you never know what you're going to learn when you sit in, you know, Issa Rae's screenwriting class or yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know what else is on Masterclass. I just remember seeing the ads for that one all the time. I know Serena Williams has one. So what you're going to learn in Serena Williams is one, or like, Jay, I think James Patterson has one about novel writing. So it's like what, what you're going to learn in those things, you never know what's going to carry over to your industry. So there is certainly other benefits within that. But also, again, I'm investing in allowing you to pursue the things that make you excited and make you want to learn and get your gears going. So yeah, and it's such a low cost barrier to entry to make that happen. Yeah, that's so true. Any tricks, tips, treasure you want to tell us about from the interview process? Like, how did you know, like, this person is everything I want and more? Like, what were some of those telltale signs? I do think for me, culture fit is everything. What we do is not rocket science. 
and you can teach it to anybody. There's certainly, what I will say is I knew off the bat, we were not a good place for somebody's first job because I knew we couldn't provide that training and we needed someone who could go hands-on right away. So that's not to say that again, you need, there is a a box, set of boxes I'm looking to check. It was more so I, when I said it was, you know, our entry level roles were truly, you need a year or two of experience. So we weren't billing them as entry level, of course, but our, our, ju- our most junior roles, they needed to be that. I would say during the hiring process, the things that really, you know, again, it was really about culture fed. I think a lot of the best stuff was the conversation about team. You know, how did you handle a situation where you disagreed with everybody in a room or everybody disagreed with you? What's your approach to conflict resolution? Those kind of questions were really useful to figure out how they'd work with us. Absolutely making sure they're not just being interviewed by senior leadership, but by the people they're going to be working with every day. So like our structure was the hiring manager, which nine times out of 10 would was me would be would do that first phone screen then I would do a deeper interview with them if I liked them my part uh, one or two of my partners would do an interview and then they would be interviewed by both someone else who has that role or if that role didn't exist someone who's in a similar role and then whoever the most long longest tenured person available on the team at that point in time was because then there's a really good kind of like skills and culture opportunity assessment from the two of them which would be really great i still think the most valuable part of any interview is the questions that somebody asks you you know most of the questions we put forth they've they've prepared for they've got their answers it's not the first time we've heard them we're not innovating we're not barbara walters asking about if you could be a tree what kind of tree would you be um, you know, I, I am, I, I'm looking for more so the disqualifiers than the qualifiers and the qualifiers then become to me, what are they interested to know about my organization? What kind of research have they done? And so, right. The first thing is when people come asking questions about like, like, who do we work with, which people, I was shocked that people would ask me, like, there are logos and case studies all over our website. It does not take 50 minutes of research. It takes 50 seconds of research to have the answer to that question. Yeah. Certainly, if you want to know our ethos, if you want to know our approach or what we're excited about, you can ask me in those ways, but don't ask me what we do and who we work with. That's, that is the most baseline barrier to entry for these conversations. But when people would bring compelling questions to the table, that's what really excited me because to me, it told me, okay, they're, they did a little bit of research about this company. They're really trying to think critically about where they want to go next. And that's what made me remember who somebody was. Yeah. And there's this person I'll never forget um, because of just the way they handled the Q&A portion of it, where um, my how it happened, I don't remember, but it ended up being that myself and my right hand, who was our senior digital strategist, who was the longest tenured person, were doing interviews for, I don't remember if it was a digital strategist or a copywriter. And the question my colleague always asked was, what are three words your friends would use to describe you? And this person answered, but then what I loved is he turned the question back on us and said, well, what are three words you would use to describe each other? And I appreciated that because I had never seen someone in a panel style interview before turn the lens back to the the panelists to converse with each other, not just putting out a question that was going to be a one to many of you all answer me, but you guys have a dialogue. I want to see how you engage with each other, which I thought was really, really interesting, whether or not that person knew they were doing it. And I will always be very happy to say that my colleague described me as open, caring, and at the intersection of funny and weird, which I think as a manager is the best way you can be described. Oh my God, I love that so much. I also really love the tip of, because I've never done this. So, I, you know, a mental note for me was, you know, including like somebody who's in that role now on one of the interviews. I think that's such a, 
great well, we, tip. we always talk about right like have have somebody when you're writing the write your own jd when you leave so that we know what to look for in the next applicant well they're still here they're doing it now they know what it takes involve them in the process one of the people in particular i'm thinking about she was telling me that they're hiring at the company she's now at and i was asking her what the process is and she said oh it's person a b c d e i was like well where where are you in this like this person's going to be your uh, manager or your your equal within the org why aren't you talking to them too and they were like she was like oh that's just not how it's done i was like well that's how it should be done. like time for wrong a wrong answer yeah <laughs> yeah that's how we've always done it okay last question for those agency owners question. who are listening, yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> For everyone who's watching or listening, what advice would you give agency owners and or marketers who are facing challenges in retaining their top talent? For instance, are there any mistakes that you see commonly made, which I'm sure you have in our industry, that they should definitely avoid? I would say not to just say I've given you the answers already, but I would say definitely the boundaries piece is a huge one. I think a lot of the reason people end up feeling uncomfortable and they don't feel safe coming to you with feedback is because they don't feel boundaries are respected. So I would say number one is think about how have you encroached upon that within your organization and how, do you still have time to walk it back and change that? So I think it starts there. I think number then number two is even looking more inward at yourself and saying, what am I modeling for people? You know, how do I work? How do I encourage discipline? And excuse me, how do I encourage um, relationship building between the members of my team? We all have to assume, especially as leaders, as managers, as organization owners, that it starts with us and what we do every single day. If we have a retention problem, it means we are not creating an environment where people want to stay. And that is not the responsibility or the fault of another member on the team. It is the, re the responsibility of you, senior leadership, to create that environment every single day with every single decision you do. Yes, you can have a bad egg on a team who makes it uncomfortable, who, who creates problems, who doesn't do good work. But if you've built the right organization, people are gonna come to you, you're gonna get that information, whether it's through informal or formal channels, and then how are you handling it? Are you saying that that's okay because this person does great work? So we're going to tolerate the fact that they're bringing toxic energy to our culture? Or are we going to say, I value the culture of the team and everybody else who's here, and we're going to figure out a way to either deal with this person's behavior, or maybe we have to remove them from the org for the sake of rising the tide of this entire piece here. So I think there's no silver bullet. There's not a one thing you can do. I think the truth is you've got to just go look at the mirror and figure out where, what are my shortcomings potentially? And where do I need to better educate myself and grow as a manager? Because it, it really does start with us. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. We had a situation several years ago now where a team member was bullying other team members. And <laughs> unbeknownst to this person, other team members who weren't even, you know, the person who this person was targeting took screenshots of the, the pings that were happening, you know, between them and sent them to me and kind of alerted me to the fact that this person was an awful person, essentially. And after we parted ways with that person, we actually instituted a zero tolerance policy. And it's, it essentially says in their agreement, you will not discuss other people's work you will not disparage anyone based on, you know, all the things, religion, race, sex, you know, sexual orientation, anything like that. And it's zero. It says it right there in the agreement, zero tolerance. So it doesn't matter if it's a half a time we're going to part ways because I just I cannot stand anything that, 
you know, resembles bullying or anything that just brings a toxic nature to the team. So I love, love, love that you said that. You just triggered something for me that was a thought on that previous answer I want to throw in also, which is I would say if there's one thing, it's remember to create a realistic expectation of people. And there's a lot of different ways that can be interpreted. But what I think about, and I said this a little bit in one of my earlier answers is people are not going to stay forever. And you know, it's a lot better than having somebody surprise you by leaving at the last minute, knowing that they might be looking for other work, knowing that you can support them in the process of getting there. What I always did, I never called them employee reviews. I called them employee evolutions. I did my best to do them once a quarter. I would say I probably averaged once a year because there were times that they just fell through. But the question I always asked is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And are we doing enough to get you in a position to, to get there? So be, be realistic with that expectation, because again, that's what's going to make people create the feedback loop to kick people back into your culture later on. Okay, so I know everyone is going to want to connect with you. I want to know what you're working on. Tell us all the things. What are you working on? Where can people find you? How can y'all connect? What am I doing now? So working as a fractional CMO, working as an advisor to startups, thought leaders, but also with other agencies, which has been a lot of fun. It means I get to, to meet more people like ourselves who are doing all this amazing work that often goes unheralded, which is a lot of fun to see the different groups that, that emerge all over the country and the world doing it. And, you know, I would say if anybody's interested in, in having a conversation, you know, I, I normally do work as a paid advisor to agencies, but have created an opportunity for listeners of the show if you've got a particular problem you're working on within your agency, whether it's retention, whether it's hiring, whatever that might be, you can visit my website, jonathanjacobs.com slash agency hyphen assist. And you can request a free 15 minute consult with me and we can you know, talk through whatever particular problem you might be facing. We can talk about the terrible season the New York Mets are having. We can talk about <laughs> Star Wars, whatever might be of interest to you. I um, would love to just know who's out there and listening more than anything else. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm up to now and always on the lookout for whatever might be the next interesting opportunity that presents itself. Awesome. Well, listen, I can tell you to take him up on that offer of 15 minutes because how long have you and I been leaning oh, on each other. I don't know. Eight years <laughs> for maybe? agency owner advice. Yeah. What would you say for? Has it been four years? No, it's got to be long. I was going to say maybe for eight years, I feel like. Oh, eight years. I thought yeah, you said four. Yeah. I was like, four seems like a little bit, but it was. No, four is way too short. Eight years. So yeah, take him up on that 15 minutes because for eight years, he supported me. We've supported each other and his advice is great. And he managed to sell his agency. So if that's something that you're aiming for, you might want to have a conversation about that as well. Yeah. And happy to talk about that's a great topic as well. So happy to talk about that if you're thinking about your exit strategy right now. Awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody, thank you for watching, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you're new to the show, be sure to give us a follow. If you've been a longtime listener, let your friends know about the show. I'm at Brooks Sellis on Instagram and Twitter. And for fun, make sure you tag at SM Examiner. Also, be sure to check out our other shows, the Social Media Marketing Podcast, the Web3 Business Podcast, and the Social Media Marketing Talk Show. This brings us to the end of this week's marketing agency show. We'll catch you next week as we explore the adventures of marketing agency life. The Marketing Agency Show is a production of Social Media Examiner. If you're like so many fellow marketers and creators and entrepreneurs, you're probably wondering, how do I put AI to work? Well, be sure to listen to the AI Explored podcast 
a new show from Social Media Examiner hosted by yours truly, Michael Stelzner. Again, check out the AI Explored podcast.